Welcome back to Inside the Daily Press. I'm Todd James, and I'm joined with our editor, Matt Hall. Today, we're continuing our election podcast coverage series, focusing on the city council. Up today is council member Ted Winderer. He is an incumbent, and he's a unique incumbent in this race, as he's the only one that originally joined city council by being elected versus being appointed. Uh, Ted is running for his third term. And Matt, what what should we know about Ted before we get into this? Yeah, so, so Ted lives in the uh, Ocean Park neighborhood. Um, he He's a realtor by profession. Um, he's been heavily involved in a lot of the discussions over the last few years in the city. Um, and in talking to him, one of the things that came out in this conversation that I thought was interesting was some of his specific thoughts around homelessness and some of the solutions that he pitched for that. Um, you know, I'll say this, there's different, there were different opinions and thoughts around homelessness and some folks pitched solutions that weren't actually solutions. They were just ways of hiding the problem. And this goes same thing. Some folks pitched crime solutions that weren't actually very well thought out and what, what have you. But in particular, I thought Ted had an interesting idea around homelessness. And so I think I think that's a topic of conversation that people will be interested in and might want to pay particular attention to. Great. Okay, let's listen to Matt Hall's interview of council member Ted Winterer. All right, folks, today we are here with Ted Winterer, who is a current city council person. Um, and he is running for re-election this year. So, Ted, thank you very much for being here. Uh, why don't you take a, take a couple minutes right now and tell people who you are and why you want to be re-elected. Uh, yeah, my, my name is Ted Winter. I've lived here in Santa Monica since 1992, met my wife here. Kids are born here. Daughters graduated from our wonderful Santa Monica Malibu Unified School System and is now off to college. And son is an eighth grader uh, at SMUSD. Uh, big believer in our public schools. Uh, live in the Ocean Park neighborhood. Uh, right now, uh, there's just three humans with us, but we have two rescue dogs and a rescue cat, so things are pretty busy in my household, particularly since we don't go outside much because of COVID. Uh, as you noted, I've served two terms on the city council. I'm running for re-election because these last six months in our city have been tumultuous and trying for all of us. We've all been uh, shut down in our homes for a long time and still dealing with the restrictions imposed upon our daily lives by COVID-19. We've had the recession that's a consequence of the pandemic that has hit many of uh, uh, in our community, particularly our lower income households in the service industry, especially hard. Uh, it's also hit the city budget very hard. And we've had to uh, cut a lot of services that are near and dear to our residents, uh, whether it's, you know, after school programs or, you know, employees at the Cove State Park, uh, Skate Park, or all sorts of things that people have always expected and, and valued, we've had to trim back. Uh, and then we had the civil unrest. Uh, and then we've had the fires and this, the air quality issues. So uh, it's enormously challenging period, nothing like we've seen in Santa Monica history for many decades, if ever. And it's my belief that if we're going to get through this and get our city back on the feet and rebuild our revenues and rebuild our services and even more importantly 
rebuild our sort of community mental health and, and well-being, because I think we've all suffered one way or another from this, that we need experienced, stable leadership that knows the ins and outs of our city finances, that knows how to move the levers of government, that knows how to respond to community input and put it into action. So I think that now more than ever is not a time for change that might want to move us backwards, uh, disrupt the progress we've made in the city. I think it's time to move forward with a positive vision. And to do so, we need people who know how to make things happen. So you mentioned uh, responding to community input. And Everyone who's running against the incumbents, every challenger is going to say the city council doesn't listen to residents. Like it's 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 going to be the drum that they beat ad nauseum. So, do you think the city council does listen to residents? Do you think the city council does take resident input into um, into front of mind when making decisions? Uh, absolutely. I think when people say we don't listen, is what they're really saying is. Uh, perhaps I heard them, but we didn't do what they asked. We live in a diverse city with lots of different opinions on every issue. Uh, you know, often the decisions are binary. You know, people are either opposed or for something. So inevitably, you're going to cast a vote that someone's going to feel, well, that's not what I wanted them to do. That doesn't mean we didn't listen. I do. I try to do as much uh, of a good job as I can to respond to people's emails. I, you know, pre-COVID, I was always available to meet to with either supporters or opponents of certain issues to have coffee and discuss their concerns. I try really hard to listen, but listening doesn't always mean agreeing. I mean, that's an issue we have in this country nationwide, right? Is trying to people understand that you know, a we should listen to each other, but b we have to agree to disagree, and that happens. But I think that we, uh, as much as any city, that do a great job of community input. I mean, you've seen some of the meetings and how late they go, just because we're having so many people call in or pre COVID come to the council chambers and speak. And so, but so I think that's somewhat splitting hairs. So like, even if you so you listen, but if you don't agree, like, so then your opponents are going to say, well, they don't agree with a majority of residents, right? Like the next, the next logical follow on from that is, okay, so if you listen, but a majority of residents feel a certain way about a subject and council doesn't listen to that majority of residents, like that's, a, that's the same point they're making just with different language. And so do, do you think the council is making decisions that a majority of Santa Monica voters agree with? Uh, yeah, I do. I mean, I, I'd be hard-pressed to think of an example. I think you have to understand this city has been my observation that generally the people you hear from are the ones that are perturbed about something. Nobody's going to go down to council chambers at 6 o'clock on a Tuesday night and sit around for three hours to speak for two minutes and say, you guys are doing a great job, and I completely support what you're doing tonight. That you know, that just doesn't happen. There, uh, there are people out there who are very happy to live in Santa Monica. They get good services. They get you know, the trash is picked up. The streets are swept. You know, obviously not as much since the budget crisis, but prior to that, uh, the police department does a good job. The fire department does an excellent job. All you have to do is go into L.A. and see where the roads aren't repaired regularly and there's homeless encampments. I think most people appreciate living in Santa Monica. So they, they have really no reason to connect with the city council to speak on issues because they're generally satisfied. So I, I, I'd like to see where you can support that 
residents have spoken on something and they represent the majority of opinion. We do do regular uh, surveys of our residents to find out what's on top of their mind. Uh, so we try to get that input that way. But, you know, if there's a particular vote on something and more people came to speak against it than, and the council voted for it, that does not necessarily mean that's the majority opinion of residents. So a couple of things we'll unpack there. Just real quick, you mentioned the city does surveys, right? The city did a big well-being survey, and I, I have to look up the number now in front of me. I don't have it. But a major, a lot of people said that they felt disconnected from the city government, right? The city did a survey, and the people responding to the survey said, we're not connected to the decisions the city council's making. Yes. And, and you know, there are numerous things that came out of that well-being survey that we have successfully addressed, you know, one of them being the kindergarten readiness. Those numbers were distressing. We make great improvement there. The the number of people in San Marco don't uh, get their, you know, recommended daily uh, uh, fresh fruit and vegetables. We've made some steps there to uh, make some progress. That one is a challenge, right? And we, what we've learned at City Hall is the world has changed. We all know it. Uh, the old mode of going down to speak at council chambers or to, uh, you know, have a town hall or something like that just doesn't work for people's lives. So we've made a concerted effort to reach people where they get their news, where they get their information. That's largely on their phones. Uh, and so we have continued our efforts. We have more and more subscribers to our e-newsletter, more and more people in our social media accounts. We get information from people that way. And certainly we get input on what they think. Uh, so that's a continued work in progress. Uh, we need to do more to connect with our residents. Uh, I, I happen to believe one of the things we need to do, you know, for years we've had sort of a police academy um, and, and people join that to learn more about public safety. I think we need to have sort of a civics 101 academy because I'm always surprised how many people don't quite understand uh, how the city government works and what the relationship of the council is to the ongoing daily management of the city. Uh, you know, when I was mayor, I constantly got people who thought I had the same authority as Eric Garcetti did in L.A. to, you know, enact things uh, from, you know, unilaterally from a position of executive strength. That's just not the way our government works. So, yeah, I, I agree. That's a challenge. Um, but we are working with our, you know, and our city managers got the communications department trying to develop more and more connections to our residents and creating sort of a a CRM, a customer relations management tool, where if you write in about a particular issue, whether it's, you know, trash at the beach or or any particular concern, you're putting in a little database so that we know when there are information to provide our residents on that issue, you will be uh, within the people who are emailed or connected otherwise about that development. So we're, we're, we're working on it. And I have to admit, you know, it's hard to move government into this century. But, uh, you know, we're only the fifth of the way through it. We can make more progress. Gotcha. And so so you also uh, mentioned, you know, the police department and fire department. And so there's a lot to unpack with that. Like, let, let's, let's start with crime and homelessness are vastly front of mind, right? I would go as far as to say that the you've got crime and homelessness. And for most people, I actually think most people are starting to separate those two out a little bit. Uh, before, I would say that most people conflated crime and homelessness into one topic. But I do think there's a little bit of difference there now. There's a little nuance emerging. So you've got crime, homelessness, um, and sort of economic development 
are the the, the topics people will vote on this year. That's what's going to decide who who's elected to city council. And so let, let's just go in order, like crime, right? We've got the long-term crime trends are kind of one subject point, the increasing in property crimes. There may be a decrease in part one crimes, right? There's quality of life issues. There's, there's that bucket of crime. And then there's the May 31st looting and rioting, right? And like that's kind of a different style of crime. So – if, if you don't care where we start, I'll start with May 31st and say, what, what do you think happened there? And are, and how do you think the city did? What is your grade for the way the police department and the city of Santa Monica responded to that incident? Well, so I don't know if you want to give it a grade. I would separate out two different grades. I think that the rank and file police officers did the best job they could under extremely trying circumstances. You know, we saw this with, there's not an isolated incident in Santa Monica the same day, you know, there's the similar looting and, and actually buildings being burned in Long Beach and throughout the region. Uh, there were peaceful protests accompanied by organized criminal looting, the likes of which we had not seen in Southern California ever before. It was very clear that, you know, this people were taking uh, opportunist criminals were coming into rental cars, organizing themselves by cell phones, having people loot stores and then going to places where they would load all the, uh, the things they'd stolen into those cars and take off. Very organized, very sophisticated. I think that I'll be honest. I think there was a failure of leadership, particularly in intelligence gathering. You know, many people knew that Santa Monica was poised to be looted on Sunday, and somehow the police response was not prepared for that. And I think that I've been disappointed that the chief has not owned that fact. You know, we saw just in the last few weeks an improvement in that intelligence gathering, and there was another attempt at organized looting that the PD very successfully curtailed without any incidents whatsoever. And I think the chief has not done a good job of owning the fact that on May 31st, the buck stopped with her. She was in charge, and any shortcomings of those operations she should own. And not, I don't think the rank and file should be blamed for following the orders they were giving and how they responded, uh, you know, arguably failed to respond to the looting on 4th Street and how they responded. Uh, the peaceful peaceful protesters on Ocean, California. I've talked to many of the rank-and-file officers. They believe strongly that on Ocean in Colorado, there were people there with incendiary devices set to burn down the pier. That would have been an enormous tragedy, right? We, you know, when the Pacific Ocean Park burned down decades ago, it didn't get rebuilt. If that pier got burned down you know, which is sort of, you know, one of the signature icons of Santa Monica, I doubt very much it would have been rebuilt. And if it had been rebuilt, it would have been a very expensive proposition. It would have required some sort of bond. Let's not forget, you know, I think it was 1983 in the El Nino storm that we lost the breakwater that used to create a harbor around the pier for boats. That never got rebuilt because there's never any money for it. So if it's true, and we will find out when we get an after-action report, which has been painfully and annoyingly slow to be produced, if there's truly evidence of people uh, with incendiary devices by the pier, 
then arguably the PD's actions were justified, although I'd like to have a hard look at whether or not the tear gassing was required, whether there was another means to disperse the, the crowd. So it's a little hard to judge on all those situations without that after-action report, uh, and I think that's another shortcoming is that the chief promised us that after-action report in August and then, then now said, oh, it's going to take much longer. I think that was another error in judgment. So uh, I'd like to sort of separate the responsibility of the individual officers out there and, and the leadership of PD, because I think the leadership does not deserve the best grade. And so, so you mentioned that you thought there were some shortcomings, like, so, so now what, right? Like, I, I think residents are justifiably angry, not just annoyed, but angry that this after action report is now super delayed. And this this tidbit of like, maybe there was a threat to the peer has been teased before. I'm not saying you're doing teasing, but I'm saying like, it's been kind of floated a little bit. I've heard it several times, but it's never been pinned down. And so like, what are people supposed to do now? Are we just supposed to sit on our hands and wait for six months to a year? Or is there going to be some, do you think council should take some kind of action before it receives that report? Well, what sort of action are you suggesting? I mean, I'm not suggesting anything because yeah. I'm not running for city yeah. council, right? But like, I'm saying that like, if there are short, there you have just outlined that you think there were some shortfalls. It sounds like, you, that you thought that there were some failures of leadership, like what? So now what? Right? Like, do we just? So now what? Like, what happens next in regards to to that incident? Well, I mean, just as I mean, I I was just as dismayed and embarrassed as anyone sitting at home and watching what was going on at May thirty first. And I don't want to make it categorically clear for those people who don't understand it. I, the the city charter precludes the council from taking any sort of action outside of a publicly noticed meeting uh, with a majority vote of four of us. So the city council could not direct the actions of the police department on May 31st. Likewise, the city charter precludes us from being involved in any personnel decisions other than the three people who we hire and who report to us, and that's the city manager, the city attorney, and the city clerk. So if there are issues in the leadership of the PD, it is incumbent upon the city manager to address those. So we have made our feelings clear to the city manager, and I think it's up to her to see uh, what action needs to be taken with the department. Obviously, we have taken some significant steps forward in police reform commensurate with the national dialogue on on. Uh, institutionalized racism and, and police brutality. I'm not one of those people who believes that we have major issues with our police department. We have some isolated incidents, but we're not shooting people in the back willy-nilly who are trying to you know, ride away on their bicycle. Uh, but we do recognize the need for some civilian oversight of the police department, uh, and we've instituted that. That's uh, an ongoing process and other reforms in terms of use of force and training and things like that, uh, that the council can do. But in terms of the leadership of the department, that is out of our hands. And, and so so what you've just now alluded to transitions into the, the ongoing management and the other crime sort of discussion that we have, right? Because May 31st is one big thing. And then there's there were some reports out of that. And we had this um, Black Agenda report and Public Safety Commission report. And some of those things are less about how to respond to one large incident and they're more about 
how to retrain and refocus the police department in its day-to-day interactions going forward, right? And I think that leads to the other kind of crime discussion, which is about day-to-day interactions, right? So the last I heard, like pre-COVID, I thought I had heard the police department said crime was down about 13-ish percent, and that post-COVID or in COVID, they're saying part one crimes are down about 16%, but that's after we've already had uh, an increase in crime for a couple of years ahead of before that decrease, right? So we've had some peaks and valleys up and down about crime going up and down. But at the end of the day, I think residents feel crime is bad, right? Residents feel out on the streets that particularly quality of life crimes, whether it's bike thefts or shoplifting or uh, petty you know, assaults that aren't major felonies, like people don't, people feel these things are getting worse. So do you feel that? Like, how do you feel the like what do you describe the state of crime in santa monica right now do you think it's a safe community do you think residents should be worried about crime in the city i think that i can't speak to whether they should be worried as we talked about before there's there's the data and the perception right and uh i will say that if you look at the historical crime data it peaked in the 1990s. I was living here. That was the height of the, the crack cocaine epidemic. Uh, the homeless situation was even worse back then. Uh, not that I'm trying to conflate uh, homelessness with crime. I'm talking about perception of safety. Uh, and people were putting bars on their windows. And, that, and all the historic data shows that that was the peak crime rate in Santa Monica. And we've, we've not approached it since. We did, you know, in 2016, 2017, 2018, see an increase in crime. And as that's part, partly because of changes in the state criminal code and because of prison overcrowding and releasing inmates and, frankly, uh, because of the epidemic of, of, of methamphetamine and, and uh, all sorts of other factors. And the police responded to that. And the data I'm aware of shows that we're down 16% in 2019 and 13% uh, so far in um, 2020. Often perception lags behind data, but I certainly understand why people don't feel safe because there are preponderance of, as you say, these sort of small quality of life uh, incidents. That's why I think the council made the right move and the PD will make the right move to double our number of neighborhood resource officers. I think people need to have a relationship with a local beat cop who can talk to them about okay, you're having these problems. This is what we recommend you do. You know, there's problems with intrusions on your property. We recommend you uh, this lighting and these other security measures. If there are chronic problems in the alleys, then there are things that the PD can do to address them. I think that it's very important not to have the police just in their cars patrolling, although that's obviously an effective tool uh, for uh, preventing crime. But I think the community needs to have that relationship with individual police officers, someone they can talk to, someone they can understand crime trends. Uh, you know, for instance, the two crimes that we've of significance that we've seen go up in 2020 were, first of all, commercial burglaries. Obviously, that happened when all businesses were shut down. Those are crimes of opportunity. Uh, and then for reasons I don't fully understand, we're seeing a lot of automobile theft. Um, and often those cars are not, you know, it's not the traditional auto theft where they're taking the chop, chop shops and, and sold for parts, you just find the car, you know, three days later in Van Nuys, abandoned. Uh, and I think the PD is struggling to get a hold of that trend. And 
Uh, you know, it's easy to defeat a lot of security systems and cars now that people have those keyless fobs. There's technology to open up cars and start them. Uh, but I think they're doing a good job overall on the crime trend. But I think the solution to the perception, as I said, is the relationship with the neighborhood beat officer. More community policing. Gotcha. So, so you talked about perception and more community policing. I guess going back to the, to the fundamental point again, the challengers are going to say Santa Monica is unsafe. Challengers are going to say citizens are unsafe. They're not just that they feel unsafe. They're going to say the city, I mean, it depends on the challenger, but some of them are going to paint a picture of Santa Monica as a crime-ridden infestation that is is beyond all sort of understandability and livability, right? And while that may be a gross exaggeration, I think people, there is, like you said, crime... Um, I'm trying to say here, the kind of crimes that people are noticing may not be part one crimes that are showing up in statistics. We're not talking about rapes, murders, and arsons, right? But that broken window theory of crime seems to be on the rise. Like, it seems like as you walk around town, you see a lot of these things. I certainly know the number of, of individuals I see walking around town with a bike that I am 100% 100% sure is stolen is very high. It's every single, it's multiple times every single day. And, and I guess how much effort do you think the police department should be putting into addressing that kind of behavior? Uh, I think, well, first of all, I want to talk about the whole issue of, of challengers and perception of crime. I think we need to acknowledge the elephant in the room is that there are certain uh, challengers running for the city council have spent the last two or three years beating the drum in social media and in a column in another newspaper that Santa Monica is unsafe. They're basically saying that Santa Monica is a cesspool and only they can fix it, although they're lacking any specific prescriptions for what they would do differently than what the current government is doing. It is, to me, I'll be frank, remarkably redolent of what the campaign that Donald Trump ran in 2016, saying the country's gone to hell and only I can fix it. So I'm skeptical that those challengers really have any specific plans to do anything differently than the, what the current government is doing. But what I would suggest is not only should the PD focus on some of those crimes, but I just happened to be down at the beach this morning riding my bike. I saw Ron Hooks from West Coast Cares, uh, you know, who's out on this, the beach every day trying to address our homeless situation, uh, and, and a number of police officers in vehicles, and they had just come upon... Uh, some homeless people who were camping on the beach and they confiscated a lot of stolen bicycles and one of the individuals had a warrant out for his arrest and they took him away in handcuffs. So they are addressing those crimes when they come across them. Uh, so, yes, they need to continue to work on those things and I believe they're, they're doing, you know, doing what they can given the resources they have. And, and you mentioned Ron. Ron. Ron is a great guy, and his organization is great. For folks who don't know, West Coast Care is a homeless – I hesitate to call him a homeless services provider. He's a homeless uh, worker who his specific um, project is he he and his friends, family, volunteers patrol the beach. And when they find a homeless person camping on the beach, they work to connect that person with resources that can put them back in touch with their families or friends or or get them services they need um, related to where they originated from. Um, and he's out there every day. And, uh, give him a plug. He does uh, fantastic and, and, work. you know, a saint of a human being, too. I mean. Yeah, his work is yeah. hard. Like, I've, I'm out there in the mornings, too, and I see him interact. 
and I use interact loosely because sometimes there's not a lot of interactivity. <laughs> like I see him working very yeah. hard, but that br- does bring us to homelessness, yes. right? Like I right now, right now, I look out the window of the Daily Press office, and there is a huge, and by huge, I mean several foot long poop stain on the wall that we have to look at every single day on the wall across from our office, and it's there because there's a there's a Right now, right now, just glancing out, I see six homeless people sleeping. One of them is, I don't know, doing what in a sleeping bag, but like just there on the street. Like this is the Daily Press is exposed to this. I'm going to say more than any other business because we're right across from OPCC. And so this is a huge issue for residents, right? The the not just the prevalence of homeless people, but. The kind of homeless person and the the way that the homeless population is currently interacting with the housed population. I, I'll say this: when I in 2014, the first city council like meeting, uh, first election I covered, homelessness wasn't something anyone gave a crap about. Like people didn't care about homelessness at that point in time. Like right now, it is hugely front of mind. So, what's the city going to do about it? What can the city do about it? How is the city? of Santa Monica going to address this problem? Yeah, well, I want to back up to what you said, I think, at the beginning of this interview, is that we have to be very cautious about conflating crime and homelessness. You know, we all know that being homeless by in and of itself is not a crime. And there are many people out there living on the streets they are not as visible who, you know, were unable to pay their rent or they had because they, you know, either their rent was increased. We know the housing costs in L.A. County increased dramatically, way outpacing wage growth over the last 10 years. So through no fault of their own, they've lost their housing because their rent increased or because they had a medical emergency and they made the choice. You know, we know half the country is living, you know, $400 away from uh being, you know, having no money to pay for things. So they had a medical emergency or they choose for paying for their health care and then losing their housing. Uh, and it's it's a huge issue countywide, right? We know in the county that for every person that gets housed, uh, at the same time someone loses their housing. So I, have, I think we have to differentiate between the people who are unhoused, uh, who want to get back on their feet, and the services we can provide can help them do that. The services the county provides can help them do that. Uh, Obviously, you need to have the housing. Uh, There is clearly a different tenor among a section of the homeless population that is more aggressive, more mentally unstable. Uh, They've been on the streets for a long, long time, I dare say. Any of us have been homeless for 10 or 15 years. Uh, our mind would beginning to develop certain fissures in it. And that is the big challenge, I think, for the city. And it's clearly what the public is most perturbed about. Uh, I, I will note that back in the summer of 2016, when Measure LV was on the ballot and everybody was talking about development, you're right back then, nobody was talking about homelessness, I was having lunch with our former city manager, Rick Cole, and he asked me, what do you think is the biggest issue we're going to face in the city in the next few years? And I said, homelessness. I don't have the data, but anecdotally, I can see that the numbers are A, increasing, and B, the individuals we're seeing out on the streets are becoming more aggressive and and potentially more worrisome to our members of our public. So this has been brewing for a while. You know that we did successfully reduce our homeless count by 8% in January compared to a 13% increase countywide. 
So that indicates to me that our various street outreach teams, uh, our you know our C3 and uh, our homeless multi multidisciplinary street teams, are having some impact on getting reducing the homeless populations. I do worry, however, that you know with the impacts of COVID-19 on people's pocketbooks, that we'll see more of those individuals who just can't pay their rent uh, being unhoused, and that's going to be a challenge for the city and the county. But specifically on what you're talking about, what you see outside the daily press, there, there are numerous issues, uh, one of which is just the complete failure of the state and the county to provide adequate mental health services for decades. And we all know that back in the 70s, Ronald Reagan decided to let people out of uh, state mental institutions, and, and probably rightly so, because they were essentially you know, incarcerating people for mental health issues. But the promise was made at that time is we'll stop paying, state will stop spending money on those mental health institutions and we'll give money to local communities uh, so they can have, you know, decentralized mental health services. Well, we're, decades later, we're still waiting for those funds. You know, this is one of those typical unfunded mandates you get from state or federal governments where you make them, you need to deal with this problem. We're not going to help you pay uh, to deal with it. So, and at the same time, the County Department of Mental Health a number of years ago made the decision to centralize all their services. So just as an example, if a police officer sees someone out there who's clearly got a major, you know, incident of schizophrenia or some other, you know, severe mental illness, and they pose a danger either to themselves or the public, they can put them on what's known as a 5150 hold, and they have to bring them to a county mental health facility that is not in Santa Monica, that is miles away from here, and then they have to wait with them for six to eight hours to get them processed through before they can go back out into the field and fight crime. Uh, so that's a huge problem, the way the mental health system works. We have tried to address that by having county mental health workers as part of those street outreach teams. I think one of the things I've been working on tried to organize some private funding. It's sort of fallen by the wayside because of the recession, but pre-COVID, I was trying to organize some private fundraising to buy a mobile psychiatric services van for the city so that we could go out and treat people in the field. I think that's the important thing is to bring those mental health services out into the field. There are people who are truly suffering. Uh, I happen to be friends with John Sharon, who runs the County Department of Mental Health. He had an op-ed the other day in the LA Times uh, it's written by him and a guy named uh, Daryl Steinberg, uh, who's former state legislature and uh, now the mayor of Sacramento. And talking about the problems we have the state law about what you can do with people on the streets who suffer from mental health. Right now, the laws do not allow people to be involu- involuntarily detained for more than 72 hours. We have to change the state conservatorship laws because people, it's not fair if you're suffering from major mental illness, to be left out on the streets, unable to fend for yourself. We have to change the state conservatorship laws so that we can get people into treatment. Because, you know, modern medicine has really made great progress on a lot of these illnesses. And if you take your meds, you can have a stable and productive life. So we need to do that. Uh, And then, you know, there's the whole issue of uh, methamphetamine. Um, The state decriminalized drug possession from a felony to a misdemeanor. Uh, that was the vote of the people, you know, ballot initiative. Most of the changes in those state laws, I think, were correct. You're going to see clear uh, racial bias in the number of people who are being incarcerated for various crimes. I think it was right to decriminalize them. I do feel strongly, however, that uh, it was a mistake to make uh, possession of methamphetamine, uh, certainly of a certain quantity of it, uh, just a misdemeanor. And the reason for that is twofold. Um, we need to get the scourge of that drug off our streets and out of not just the unhoused population, but the housed population. The other is that we used to be able, if someone was arrested for a felony possession of methamphetamine, 
you could plea bargain them down to a misdemeanor in return for them going into rehab. But now that it's a misdemeanor, there's no tool to get them into rehab. So I think there's some changes that need to be made in state policy and county policy. Uh, and it's a challenge for the city to address these without those changes. But I believe progress is ahead of us on those. Uh, in, the, in the meantime, uh, I think that, you know, we've expanded our police HLP, our homeless liaison program, so that there are more officers and they're out there in the field seven days a week. I think along with, uh, you know, our recent decision to expand the neighborhood resource officer program, we probably need to take a hard look at expanding that program so that we can have some, you know, productive inter interactions with uh, the more aggressive members of our homeless population and our police department try to resolve some of those concerns. Um, so, so there's there's a lot there. I just want to this tra does transition us to a, another topic real quick. So, some of the things you mentioned about with the state. So, there's props forty seven or there was forty seven and fifty seven were some of the state laws that did some things like makes some things misdemeanors, makes it harder to put some people in jail. There was a huge. The police department will tell you that that those laws have made it very difficult to enforce quality of life crimes because even if you quote unquote arrest somebody, you physically cannot take them to jail because the jails won't accept them or the crime only carries a ticket. And that this is a whole big discussion point. But there is a ballot proposition on this year's uh, November, this ballot, it's Prop 20, which would revise some of those Situations, and I'm I'm being just trying to nutshell this as much as I can because we don't want to get into an an hour conversation now about Prop Twenty. But going down the ballot, do do you know about Prop Twenty? Do you think do you support that? I I, I am aware of it. I I be honest with everything that's going on. I have not yet had a chance to sit down and look at it. I know there are concerns that it goes too far. Um, as I said, I think the Prop Forty Seven and Prop Fifty Seven are. Had, had the best intentions and were right in very many ways. Uh, we need to do a better job in this state and this country of not just locking people up, but trying to address the root problems of their criminal activity, which have to do with uh, employment challenges, have to do with institutionalized racism, have to do with drug addiction, all those sort of things which being locked up don't cure. In fact, they are counterproductive to doing that, right? You come out with a felony record, you can't get a job. Uh, you go into prison, you know that's not going to do any good for your drug addiction. Those are examples. So I think we need to sort of shift our criminal justice system so that we, uh, we, we, we address the root causes of crime with better social programs and better education. Uh, but as I said, I do feel strongly about the issue of methamphetamine because I've just seen how many lives out in the street have been ruined by it. And I... I do think that that should be, uh, well, for lack of a better word, recriminalized. Gotcha. And so I'm going to make, make a hard left turn here to a different subject because we're, we're, time is ticking away, and I do want to get to some conversations about economic development. Um, so obviously there's a lot of things going on when it comes to the economy, right? There's COVID, which is in, is in and of itself a disruptor to the economy, and then there's knock-on effects from that that are causing additional stresses on um, commercial rents and evictions and all kinds of things, right? So as you look at the Santa Monica economy today and the ability of the economy to fund city services, what are you most worried about right now? And what, can you, what sort of specific policies or actions do you think the city council should implement in the short term to help 
local businesses survive? Well, what I worry about the most is I'm not so sure we've reached the bottom, right? I think that uh, the moratorium on commercial rents has helped some businesses stay functional, um, but that will expire. Uh, I think absent federal leadership on the issue, and I really believe we should have a national policy we, you know, let's look back at the Great Recession and let's look at who got bailout money then, right? It was the banks who made bad loans. Um, we need to have a bailout program here to people who are suffering through no fault of their own, right? They're suffering because COVID caused businesses to shut down, people to lose their jobs, business owners to lose their businesses or to be struggling to keep them afloat. So we need a national policy to address the whole issue of property owners and the mortgages they need to pay and the property taxes they need to pay and then business owners who have rent they need to pay and and people who don't have jobs and you know we haven't even gotten the the federal government to extend uh, you know uh, specific covid uh, related unemployment benefits i think they're doing a miserable job frankly and i'm I can only hope that we have a sea change in the administration after November 3rd or whenever the votes finally get tallied and the federal government gets down to doing what it needs to do to get our economy restarted. But locally, uh, we will, in the short term, have to deal with those issues. I think we'll see more and more people as the moratoriums end and, you know, the state has now put certain limits on what we can do locally with its own laws and the federal government in terms of our eviction moratoriums. We'll have to figure out a way... Uh, with limited resources to solve some of those problems. Now, we did in our budget decisions back in the spring sequestered $20 million in case we had another complete shutdown of the economy because of, of COVID. I can only hope that people have gotten a lesson from the last six months that you need to wear a mask, wash your hands, stay more than six feet apart, and we can continue the current trend of uh, reducing the rate of infection in LA County. Because we do that, then we get to the point where, okay, we have this $20 million we secured away for, uh, you know, another complete shutdown. And if we can tap into that to to, to bring some sort of relief to businesses, which are the lifeblood of city revenues, and to renters who may be losing their homes. And obviously, we want to keep people housed because when they're not housed, they're homeless. And that creates more challenges for us. So I think we need to hopefully be able to tap into those funds and see whether we can locally solve some of the challenges, which I suspect are just beginning to rise to the surface. So so what I heard there is sort of trying to use some city money to subsidize some things. But are there are there policy? Are there what else can you do other than give people money or try and prevent people from having to pay money, right? Like, are there policies that can be altered, changed, or shifted in some way that would facilitate economic activity? Well, so we, we did a number of those, you know, in the spring in terms of interim zoning ordinances that made it easier to open up uh, businesses, to make it easier to get an alcohol license, made it easier to change the use of a business from one to the other by getting rid of some of our restrictive requirements for parking or loading docks, et cetera. Uh, You know, Santa Monica's long had a reputation of being business unfriendly. Um, And I think we've been able to get away that for a long time because we have 
been a place that businesses and people want to come to. Uh, but that is no longer the case, right? People are able to pick and choose the place that might be most hospitable for business. I think hopefully there's been a cultural change that, you know, the bureaucracy at City Hall has realized, okay, we took some risks last spring in liberalizing our regulations and the world did not come to an end. So maybe we should make these permanent, you know, in a way that does not create, you know, burdens on the residents who live nearby these businesses. But I don't think we've heard any huge outcry from anybody in the community, for instance, about the very easy permit process we had. You fill out a one-page application to say, I want to use, you know, the the, the sidewalk or our parking space out in front of me or my park in the rear of my business for outdoor dining. I've not heard any objections to that whatsoever. And uh, I think that's been hugely successful. So we need to possibly make some of those changes permanent. Uh, you look at the Main Street outdoor dining. I was down there uh, Sunday. Pretty much every table outside was filled with people enjoying themselves, spending money. Uh, that's good for the businesses. That's good for the city treasury. So I think we need to look at making some of those changes permanent. We do have the climate where, frankly, it should be like Barcelona. It should be outdoor dining everywhere. Uh, so I think we need to do that. Uh, we need to also just continue to sit down with the businesses and find out what hurdles remain to them to either stay open or to open a new business. So we have for years have had problems with how rigorous and exhausting our process for getting a basic tenant improvement process is, uh, permit has been. And we need, to, we need to continue to look at that and make that easier. We need to just engage the business community um, and make sure that uh, they're able to get back on their feet. Because as I said, I always say 65% of the revenues that pay for police and libraries and, and all sorts of things that are important to our residents come from our businesses. So we need to acknowledge our importance to our community. Uh, and plus, uh, you know, frankly, people like living in a city where they can go to a place like a Montana Avenue or Pico Boulevard and, and patronize a small local owned business they've known for years. They don't want them to go away. So we, we need to work really hard on that. Gotcha. Um, all right, so we're we're approaching the the hour point in the conversation, which is where where I start to wrap things up for everybody, just because no one listens to more than an hour of conversation anyway. But is there I can, uh, I can barely listen to myself for this whole hour. <laughs> is is there a topic or a subject that you wanted to get to, or you want to say something about that we didn't cover? Well, I just want to say generally um, that. These have been really tough times for, you know, all of us. Uh, and it's been particularly painful to be in city government and watch basically the wheels come off so quickly and precipitously in so many areas. Um, you know, um, we could argue back and forth about the who was responsible for May 31st, but everything else is pretty much out of our hands, right? We didn't create COVID-19. We didn't create the recession. We had to take the necessary steps to cut the budget. And I'll add that. You know, I thought what we did back last spring, while it was really painful and upsetting to many of the, many of the community, was actually very fiscally prudent. You'll notice that only now is the city of L.A. starting to wrestle with its budget deficit and going, oh, no, uh, maybe we need to start furloughing people. We, we staunched the bleeding right away. We stopped the outflow of cash when there wasn't cash coming in. And we did the right thing. Uh, and I hope that we'll get to the point soon where we can bring back some of those people bring back some of those jobs, bring back the services they provided the community. But we did the right thing, uh, as painful as it was. Um, so I think that it's important to have leadership that acknowledges that, yeah, 
things are tough right now. Um, we never see anything like it, but it doesn't mean that things won't get better, right? This still is a remarkable place to live. Uh, the demand for people to uh, find housing here is still very strong. We're, you know, we're by the beach. We have a benign climate, except for, you know, we have fire season in the fall, but that's a, you know, state issue. It's a climate change issue. Uh, but we need to not despair. It's really difficult when things are darkest to do for, for people to prey on fear, uh, to talk about hopelessness. I think that we need to acknowledge that we will do better. We can do better. We will do better. And we'll get the city back on its feet. We'll have a, a resident population that enjoys a great quality of life. We'll bring back the services. Uh, and we will do our utmost to make this sort of a, a, a beacon for what a city can be, which has always been our aspiration at City Hall, right? To make sure that everybody in the community is is both engaged and has the opportunity to thrive all the way down to the lowest income households. We want to preserve our socioeconomic diversity. We want to be just. We want to do the best things we can for our environment. We have some aspirations which have been temporarily derailed, but they still remain the aspirations of this city government in terms of what the strategic priorities are, which is a, you know, a uh, healthy local economy, uh, fiscally stable government, uh, more and more responsive services to our residents. So we need to sort of get rid of sort of the uh, the processes we went through in the in past decades. And I think we're making progress on that. I'll give you an example. Just it used to be if you wanted to have a block party, you had to get wet signatures on multiple pieces of paper from multiple locations around city uh, the city of San Mark, you had to go to City Hall and then the city yards, etc. We a couple of years ago changed that. You can do it online, one stop, and you can get a permit to have a block party. Um, I, I wish more people were aware of that because I think that would help to build community and relationships with neighbors. And I know that anybody on the council would be happy to attend any block party. But that's just an example of how the city government needs to become more nimble and more efficient. And, and in a way, the fact that COVID has forced us because of the budget cuts to think about how to become more nimble and efficient. Uh, that will be one of the few salutary effects of what we've endured from this pandemic. But I, I just, I believe that right now we need to have leadership that acknowledges the difficult times we've been through, but also knows that we can do better and will do better. And there's a brighter day ahead. And, and one real quick, I just do want to bring this up and this, I should have brought this up in connection to the resident feedback part of it, but we haven't talked about development at all. And there are some specific projects that people are concerned about. There's the Miramar project. We've got what we refer to as the Geary project, which is not called that, but that Frank Geary is designing a project. And you've got the plaza at 4th and Arizona. Um, did, you know, people are concerned. People think there's too much development. People think those projects are too large, too big. And there are residents who say they should not go forward. Um, you know, how do you respond to that? Well, I have to be careful, right? Because we have the Brown Act um, and um, we can't discuss public policy. Anyway, there's the Brown Act, right? The council cannot discuss public policy outside of a public meeting. Um, and we have the Miramar hearing coming up in exactly one week. So I, I need to be careful about that. I, I, you can't tell us yeah, yes or no. I think, I think they, they, way, they are, this, these are difficult issues for us right now, right? It is 
we need to weigh the pros and cons of the physical impacts of those developments in terms, you know, people, some people object to the height and mass, other people more specifically object to the potential traffic and circulation impacts. Uh, we need to balance those against the fact that we are deep in a recession and there are entities that want to invest in this city. And do we say no to that investment and you say no to that investment in those big projects, does that mean the guy who's thinking about renting out space at the old Barnes and Noble on the promenade was going, well, the city is not really interested in me investing in that particular property, right? So we have to balance sort of uh, future economic prosperity and uh, sending a message to uh, those who have capital and want to help us rebuild the city and its economy versus concerns some of our residents express and I will say it is very difficult to balance those two gotcha all right and then like I said coming up on time limit here so uh, if you want to uh, what's your what's your closing argument what's your stump speech what's the the vote for Ted like spiel yeah I think I've already given it in some ways but uh, I think uh, look I've been doing this for eight years um, I think I've proven uh, to most people in the community that I will respond to their emails and we discuss the difference between listening and agreeing with opinions, but I always respect the opinions of people. I think that's sort of a, an art we've lost in political discourse, uh, at least at the national level. Um, you know, there are people with whom I disagree that I still remain friends. Uh, I don't go out with a, for a drink with them. We have a, you know, a healthy and uh, con constructive debate about issues. That's a lost art in this city and in this country. Um, I think I've been very committed. I think that these are difficult jobs running a city council. I think we're probably poised at the point where the challenge of being on the city council is great enough that we need to look at possible charter reforms in the future. Um, it's really tough to do this basically as a volunteer job, right? We all have day jobs and you have families and to the demands of the council work on top of that, you know, there there will be times where it's just really hard to juggle them all. And I think we need to think about whether or not we should get to the point where the charter from 1946 doesn't reflect the reality in the 2020s. Uh, but I've worked really hard at this job and I've shown that I can build consensus around difficult issues on the city council uh, and find a point where we can come to agreement uh, and often those compromise positions are what's best for a community rather than going to the extreme of either end of a, an issue and that I'm determined to work hard for another four years to get this city back on its feet, uh, to engage the residents to the best of my ability and to, you know, do what I can for a city that I love to make it uh, recover from all we've been through in the last six months. So I encourage people to look at my website, which is very simply, www.tedforcouncil.com uh, and see what I stand for and uh, vote for me again. I'd love to serve the city for another four years. Thanks for listening to the Santa Monica Politics Podcast, powered by the Santa Monica Daily Press. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Music for the Santa Monica Politics Podcast. It's provided by The Brig Band. The Brig Band is an L.A. jam band that's been playing on the West Side since 2002. 
Their regular members and guests have played professionally with everyone from Miles Davis, Herbie Hancock, and Stevie Wonder to The Doors, Fishbone, and Steely Dan. If you want to find out where they're playing next, go to thebrigband.com.